Then your friend invites you to a party. You arrive and there's lots of people, decorations, food and drink. There's enough for everyone. When you're hosted by someone that generous, you don't have to worry about your needs. You can just enjoy yourself and focus on the people around you. Yeah, that's what a good host wants for her guests. And this is the picture of the world that we find in the Bible. Creation is an expression of God's generous love. He's the host and humans are his guests in a world of opportunity and abundance. And we're called to keep the party going, to spread his goodness. This is a beautiful picture, but it's not the way people experience the world. Rather, we find a world of scarcity and struggle, not abundance. And Jesus grew up in that kind of world. Under military occupation, people losing their land or families to debt and poverty. And yet, he would say things like this. Look at the birds. They don't store up food for themselves, yet they have enough. Or consider the wildflowers. They're beautiful and abundant, and they don't stress about their existence. And you all should live that way, too. But surely Jesus knew that things don't always work out. I mean, sometimes there really isn't enough. And Jesus did experience poverty firsthand, but he viewed the world through the story of the Hebrew scriptures, which claimed that our scarcity problem isn't caused by a lack of resources. Rather, the problem is our mindset that God can't be trusted. Maybe God's holding out on me. Maybe there isn't enough and maybe I need to take matters into my own hands. And once we're deceived into that mindset of scarcity, we can justify the impulse to take care of me and mine before anyone else. And that leads to envy and anger, violence, and a world where it seems like there's not enough. The party's over, it's turned into a battleground. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us who are gathered here. Take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're going to continue looking at what the Old Testament has to say about stewardship. And the reason is it has a lot to say. And everything that Jesus will say in the New Testament about money and stewardship is rooted in what the Old Testament already said, because that's his scriptures. And we tend to think of what the Bible says about money in terms of um, just like strictly how you use it, right? Make sure you give enough to to the temple or the church, and then you're fine. But actually, the, the Bible has not just wisdom for how we spend money in our own personal lives, but it also has a whole lot to say about the morality of how we spend our money. So we're going to start in Deuteronomy 14, in verse 22. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe when the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household, and you shall not neglect 
the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, and the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns, shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. So we normally uh, will think of the tithe as like 10% of our income. In this case, it's you know, 10% of all the grain that you grow in your field or all the grapes you grow in your vineyard or all the oil you produce from, from the olives in your olive grove. Or if you have livestock, it's the firstborn of your livestock, which is kind of significant because um, you know, typically, right, whatever the firstborn animal of your livestock is, you kind of want to save that one and breed it because that's the one with the strongest genes. That's the one that came out first. It's usually going to be coming from the healthiest parents. And in other parts of the Old Testament, the instruction will be specifically not just 10% of your grain, but the first 10% of your grain. The crops that grow the fastest and the strongest, you can't save those seeds to grow more. You've got to give them away. Which not only hurts your ability to improve your crops in the next year, it also means you've got to take the first 10% as it comes up, not knowing what's going to happen with the other 90% of your fields. For people whose lives depended on agriculture, the first command God gives them about all the stuff they're growing and relying on to feed themselves and their families is, you're going to have to trust God to provide for you, not just years down the line, but tomorrow. Because you won't be able to take the best of your livestock to breed them or the best of your seed to save them and improve your crops in future years. You've got to give that to me and trust that I will take care of you anyway. But here's the interesting thing, right? So you've got 10% of your tithe, right? And then every three years, you give an additional 10% to the poor. And then elsewhere, they're instructed to give 10% of their income to all the festivals that happen every year that, that they're supposed to gather for. So in total, actually, the tithe in the Old Testament works out to 23.33% every year. 10% to the temple, 3.33% to the poor, and 10% in celebration at the festivals. We don't usually think about that, right? Almost everyone who still insists that the tithe is mandatory is going to get the amount wrong, and they'll say it's a flat 10%, when the Bible doesn't command a flat 10%. That's just one piece of it. The modern equivalent would be like 10% to the church, 3.33% of your income to charities that help the poor, and then 10% to celebrate things like Christmas and Easter with huge, lavish parties which, I mean, given some of our Christmas budgets, might actually be a little underestimating it, right? But, um, but isn't that interesting, right? That nearly half of your giving is supposed to be in the form of a celebration, a massive feast. We don't usually think of stewardship in that way, but, but there it is. God's people are required to be a people who celebrate. And the thing is, they're specifically instructed to bring those tithes for the festival to the place that God chooses that's going to be Jerusalem. And that's where they get to celebrate. So it's not just something that they do as a family or in their private home. They do it. It's a communal thing. They get together as the people of God to celebrate all the good things that God has given them. And it's pretty clear this is supposed to be a very raucous party, right? 
If you can't bring your food and livestock, sell it, take the money, go to Jerusalem, buy as much wine as you want. Let's have a party. Doesn't sound very Christian, but you know. So it's not just that celebration is a part of stewardship, it's that communal celebration is a part of stewardship. We celebrate together as the people of God all the things that God has given us. It's actually a really important component. Almost half of their tithe is for celebration. Not an obligation, not something that they have to do to make sure that the temple can pay its light bills or its oil bills or whatever they're using, but just for the purpose of having a gigantic party to celebrate the goodness of God. That's part of stewardship. We're going to move into the wisdom literature now. The laws have, you know, we've laid out the laws, right? The law gives you all these clear indications of what you're supposed to do, lays out how much you're supposed to give, you're supposed to use some of it to celebrate, and then you come into the wisdom literature and it's going to start talking about things like personal finance. And so in Proverbs 22, 7, one of my favorites, right? If, you, if you've ever taken a, like Financial Peace University with Dave Ramsey, this is familiar. The rich rules over the poor and the borrower is the slave of the lender. Now, this seems pretty straightforward, right? It's advice to avoid debt. The borrower is slave to the lender, and it's solid advice, right? But we live in a world where some measure of debt is unavoidable. Even if you don't have credit cards or student loans, most of us will have a car loan. Most of us will have a mortgage. Our economy is built on debt. We can't avoid it. And the economy of the ancient world when this was written was, in a similar way, built on slavery. You couldn't avoid it. And in fact, debt was one of the major reasons a person would be enslaved. If you couldn't pay your debt, you sold yourself or your children into slavery. In other words, this little proverb here is not a metaphor. Very literally for them, the borrower is the slave to the lender. But the Old Testament has very strict rules for how to treat slaves for exactly that reason. It's a part of life Israel wouldn't be able to avoid. And so, if they can't avoid it, God's people are then responsible for holding the slave owners to high moral standards in their treatment of the slaves. And likewise, we may not be able to avoid debt entirely, although clearly we should avoid it as much as we can, but, but we can also, we can hold lenders to the highest moral standards possible. Because the Bible does not place the moral responsibility for a debt on the debtor, but on the lender. Which is not how we are used to thinking of it. But consistently, all throughout the Bible, the moral responsibility for the existence of a debt is on the lender, not the debtor. I say that to point out that the, the standards of Scripture on stewardship and, and how we're supposed to handle money and the moral component of that does not always line up with the way that our world works. And that could cause us some problems. Nowhere is that more evident than here in chapter 29 of Proverbs, verse 7. And then later on in verse 30. A righteous man knows the rights of the poor, and a wicked man does not understand such knowledge. So a key difference all throughout the Old Testament between the righteous and the wicked is their treatment of the poor, right? 
the people who can't defend themselves. It's up to the ones who have the means to be the ones who advocate for those who lack. And then in chapter 30, verses 8 and 9, Remove far from me falsehood and lying, and give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. In other words, I don't want to be poor. Now, we all would agree with that, right? No one really wants that. But I don't want to be rich either. That one we might have a bit more of a struggle with. Right? He's saying, let me be somewhere in between. Because if I'm poor, life is hard. I might be tempted to resort to immoral means of providing for myself and my family. But if I'm rich, I might forget my need for God. Not something we often think about. But it's true, the the more well-off we are, the harder it is for us to recognize our need for God. If you ever spend time, by the way, with Christians from other countries, you become really apparent of this. Because we we talk or we read in the Bible about like the rich and the poor, and and we forget sometimes um, every one of us falls into that category of the rich. You may not feel like it, but compared to the vast majority of the world, you're pretty well off. And it's very easy to fool ourselves into thinking without even realizing it that we don't need God. But for hundreds of millions of Christians in the rest of the world, there's no illusion. They know if without God, they're doomed. And I'll tell you now, the way that they talk about their faith does not sound like the way we talk about our faith. They live and breathe Jesus. There's a wisdom in that that we don't have access to. I love this idea. I don't, I don't want to be poor because that might lead me to a different kind of trouble, but I don't want to be rich either. Give me just enough, God, so that I don't feel like I need to take matters into my own hands, but not enough that I don't recognize how deeply I need you. And then you tie that into the, the other bit about knowing the rights of the poor knowing the needs of the poor. That mindset of, I've got just enough, and that means I can still share. I have just enough to meet my needs, and I know that God's going to meet my needs, and that means I can be generous. Because even if I feel like I don't have enough to do this, God will take care of me. And this is something that's going to come back to bite the people of Israel quite a lot. As we come into Isaiah, this little passage from Isaiah illustrates that bit about forgetting your need for God when you grow too wealthy here in chapter 2, verses 7 through 8. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. What a great illustration of that last proverb. The nation grew rich, and as a result, they forgot their God. 
which you might recall is exactly the thing Moses warns them about at the end of Deuteronomy. He says, don't go into the land and fool yourself into thinking that you earned this place yourself, that you earned all the things God's giving you yourself because you didn't plant these vineyards and you didn't plant these olive trees and you didn't build these cities. God gave them to you. Someone else did all this work. Don't forget it. And what do they do? They forget it, like immediately. Right? Not even a full generation passes before they forget that exact warning. It doesn't take long. That's the human condition. It's really easy to fool ourselves into forgetting what God has done for us. And so the people hoard their wealth. They hoard their possessions. And they turn and they worship false gods because false gods don't demand generosity. The idols they worship don't demand that they give them anything more than they want to give them. They don't demand that they take care of the poor and needy among them. But the God of Israel does. He demands generosity from his people. It's not optional. Because he intends to use us to express his generosity and his provision to others. Mother Teresa once said, if sometimes our poor people have had to die of starvation, it's not because God didn't care for them, but because you and I didn't give. We were not instruments of love in the hands of God. It's not because God didn't care for them. It's because you and I didn't do our job. I don't know about you, but I, I want to be an instrument of God's love out in the world. Now, that's a hard calling. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying I do it well. But that is nonetheless the calling of every single man and woman of God. And it's all summed up here near the very end of the Old Testament in Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. I mean, that's stewardship right there. To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. It sums up the entire Old Testament teaching on not just stewardship, but on what it means to be a faithful follower of God. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. We have a tendency not just to see to our own needs first, but to view the problems of other people as their problems and their responsibility. And any generosity we show on our part is therefore this incredible gift. Look how good we are at being generous, and we want to be celebrated for being generous. But there is a clear theme right from the beginning to the end of the Bible that because all of us are God's children. We're all made in his image. We're all loved all the way to the cross and beyond that everyone's problems are our problems. We don't have the luxury of sitting back and saying, yeah, well, they've gotten themselves into this mess and they're going to have to get themselves out. No matter how much we might like to say that sometimes, no matter how tempting it be, no matter how logical it may seem, the Bible doesn't give us that option. It may indeed be their fault that they've gotten into this mess. It doesn't excuse us from the requirement to help. Paul tells us to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bearing each other's burdens is the law of Christ. 
we're required to be generous and giving. And if we see a need that we are able to meet, we are required to meet it. Now, obviously, we're also called to do so very wisely, right? I mean, handing a sack of cash to an addict is not likely to feed them. But you can buy them a meal. You exercise wisdom in your generosity, but you are still required to be generous. And within the church, we all have, I mean, the church itself has collective needs. How are we meeting those? How are we giving towards those? Generosity and stewardship is this multifaceted thing where you're part of a church and the church has needs and you give to those, but there's also a world outside the church and they have needs. And what are you doing there? See, it's really tempting to, you know, give to the church and say, well, the church has a food pantry and the church gives to missions and so I can just give to the church and then that covers it. You aren't allowed to outsource your generosity to others. So as you, you know, pray over your pledge card, I would encourage you not just to pray over what you're going to contribute to the church, but where else are you going to give? How else are you going to meet the needs of the people around us? Maybe you can't, you know, give an additional 10% of your income somewhere else, which is fine. I get that, believe me. But what can you do? What other ways can you actually go out and meet the needs of the people? What, what ways can you be a steward beyond just what you're going to give to the church? Because honestly, if I spend this entire month preaching about stewardship and I take all your pledge cards at the end of the month, but all you do is give 10% of your money to the church and your spending habits don't change in any other way and you don't give anywhere else, then I haven't really done my job as your pastor. I hope this is not the only place you're giving because we are not the only people doing the work of the kingdom in our community. And there are plenty of people out there doing things we can't do or that we aren't called to do, but maybe you're called to support them. Stewardship goes beyond the church. And maybe most importantly, we give without expecting to be celebrated for our generosity. Quite the opposite. Our generosity is itself the celebration. We give as a way of celebrating what God has given for us. Remember, half their tithe was just to celebrate. We give as an expression of the joy and gratitude that we have for all that God has already given us. That's the celebration. That's why we give. Not out of obligation, out of joy and thankfulness. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.